You guys know I'm always talking about tracking my money. You can't manage what you don't measure. And I use a paid app to do that because I'm kind of crazy. But when I talk to you guys, my readers and my listeners, you want a free solution. You want something that links to your personal accounts and tracks your net worth. You want something that has analysis tools and a personalized plan for you. And you want real wealth management advice. The free answer is personal capital. Personal capital is an awesome tool, and it is hard to believe that it's free. And the world agrees. Year after year, personal capital is recognized as a best-in-class budgeting and tracking tool. And that's why I feel good about being affiliated with them. So if you want to start getting your finances in order, and you want to do it for free, start with personal capital. Here's how. Go to the show notes, click on that link, and let them know that the best interest sent you, and start your free account today. That's personal capital, your all-in-one free personal finance tool. Welcome to the Best Interest Podcast, hosted by Jesse Kramer, where we discuss today's best ideas in personal finance and investing. The Best Interest is a personal podcast meant for entertainment purposes only. It should not be taken as financial advice and is not prescriptive of your financial situation. Here's your host, Jesse Kramer. Hey guys, what's up? Jesse Kramer here. Welcome to episode 28 of the Best Interest Podcast. Now, nothing against any of the other guests I've had on the podcast because they have been seriously amazing to talk to, but today's guest might just be the best yet. Now, there's a little white noise in the background at times during our conversation. I hope it doesn't bug you too much because the wisdom and experience from this guest is simply fantastic. But real quick, before I introduce our guest, could you please pause the show and then in your podcast app, give a rating and review to the Best Interest Podcast. Why? Because the Best Interest, it's a growing small business and I want to keep making this content for people just like you. A rating and a review, it lets all those fancy algorithms know that you care about this podcast. And I know I'm asking for your time, I'm asking for your effort, and I know that you don't owe me anything. So I really appreciate those of you who decide to sacrifice that time and effort to leave that rating and review. Thank you guys. So with that, let's go meet our guest. My guest today is a financial independence specialist, but like some former guests, he wants to stay separate from his real world financial profession. And he wants to keep that separate from his online persona. So he runs an anonymous account where he discusses simple investing, real estate investing, net worth tracking, financial independence tactics, and much, much more. So I'm very excited to introduce Sean, the FI squirrel, to the Best Interest Podcast. Sean, good evening. How are you, my friend? Very good. Letting the squirrel out of the bag with the name. Thanks, Jesse. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, we can start there. We can start there with squirrel because, Sean, I want to hear a little bit about your backstory. I'd love for you to introduce yourself to my audience. And maybe part of that story can be where the FI squirrel name comes from. Sure. Sure. That sounds good. So uh, I don't have a crazy great story about where the squirrel part came from, but I've been on Twitter for about a year, two years or so, just lurking like most people do, trying to feel out the community to begin with. 
And then uh, I was on a vacation last winter with my family and we went for like a six week Mexico getaway to kind of reconnect. And I had a lot of spare time in my hands. So I thought it would be a good time to finally open up an account and start my Twitter account. Uh, so you're always trying to, it's that pivotal moment, trying to think of who your identity is going to be or what your character is going to be. And I knew I didn't want to be uh, a non-anonymous just because my plan was always to share my financial, my, all my details, my money numbers. I want to be super transparent. So I knew I needed to be anonymous to start. So Squirrel was just one of those funny animals that you can't help but chuckle at. And it works in multiple ways with Squirrel stashing away and saving for a rainy day. So it just kind of worked out that way. And uh, I've had a few pretty cringe profile pictures over the last year and a half. And I, I think I finally classed it up with the bow tie. <laughs> I think my first one was uh, literally a clip art or something off of Google with like, it had like watermark images all over it from whoever I ripped it off of. <laughs> That's how bad <laughs> FI Squirrel started in the beginning. Well, we all know the game of the iterations of Twitter profiles. So, so nothing wrong with that. It's ever, ever evolving. Um, but one thing you mentioned there was how staying anonymous for the sake of being able to share all your details, because that is, I feel like, one of the uh, one of the highlights of your online presence or what you bring to the table is that you share your your details. So I'm just curious, from your point of view, you know, what's the thought process behind sharing all those details? What do you hope people get out of those details from you? Well, when I started, I wasn't really thinking about other people and inspiring because. I really didn't think anyone would care about my account. So when I started, I really just wanted to have what every uh, Twitter user, a lot of us start out kind of making that mistake of thinking it's an online diary. I, I thought I was going to do, put it this way, I was too lazy to do a blog. Uh, before Twitter, I followed bloggers for easily five, six, seven years before that. And uh, I've seen a lot of people's kind of financial journey of where they've started and what they've grown to just by clicking on their monthly updates on uh, on their blogs. But I just know that I don't have the discipline and the, uh, the effort it takes to continue with a blog. Long form writing just to me is too daunting. And Twitter seemed like a really easy way to break into it with whatever it is, 240 characters. I can give a quick update and I don't have to feel like I'm chained to this job of a blog. So that's kind of how it started with the Twitter account is I just wanted to do kind of an online tracking extra level of what I've already been doing ex with Excel. And then uh, it's just kind of grown from there. I, I really do love the numbers and the tracking. I'm a, I'm a self-proclaimed money nerd and I love, love tracking this kind of stuff. So it seemed like a good place to start sharing. And in the beginning, when you're looking for some kind of traction and getting some viewers numbers sell like when you when you post your numbers that kind of helps you build an account and grow an account so that fortunately worked in my favor that i had some decent enough numbers that that people took notice uh, and since then i just try and uh, be consistent by posting each month to not only keep myself accountable but now i've got people who uh, are inspired by it and want to start doing the same I can vouch that long form content can be daunting as someone who has written a lot of long form content it uh it's time consuming after a while. And I can also vouch for the fact that once I started posting some of my hard numbers, Sean, I found that I had more people reaching out to me 
especially people who had known me for a while, people who had known me, say, growing up or from college, they knew I was doing the best interest as a project. But when they saw some of the numbers and they tied those numbers in with the behaviors that got me there, that's when they reached out to me and said, whoa, now I see the power of what you're talking about, whether it's budgeting or index funds. And now I take you a little bit more seriously, Jesse. So I, I think there is a real power in numbers there. And I wanted to ask you, Sean, you, you, you mentioned tracking, uh, about how you're tracking all your numbers. How vigilantly do you track your finances? What does that process look like for you? It's not as much as you'd think. I, uh, I love to preach the numbers to other people because I truly do believe it's my, been my secret to success for a family. But it, I don't ask a lot. I, what I do with my money marathon spreadsheet that I, that I created and I use religiously for us, it's, it's literally 15 minutes a month. Uh, the first, oh, I should say, I, ideally it's the first of the month. It usually happens around the seventh or the eighth. Whenever we get around to it, but me and my wife sit down. Um, I include her in the process because I want to make sure she's um, n- knowing what's going on and aware of our numbers. So we sit down together. I've got the Excel sheet and the laptop. She's got her phone and our just our banking app. And she reads me the numbers and I just punch in all of our money in, all of our money out, update our net worth with our account numbers. And it's, like I say, it's about 15 minutes. Uh, most of the work has been me going through 300 iterations of Excel spreadsheets, nerding out and trying to make it better and improve upon and add graphs and just getting lost in that, having fun with it. But the maintenance of the, of what we do as far as tracking is, is very, very minimal. We just uh, update that once a month just to make sure that we have to course correct anything or if we ever have a bad month we're aware of it it's front of mind and we're going to correct the next month afterwards knowing that we had a slip up um but as far as detailed tracking i'm i'm not a budget guy at all i uh, apologize to all the hardcore personal finance people out there that maybe will shame me for this but like i've never been a budget person i've i've believed in always spending less than we make, which is what we, we try and stick to. But beyond that, I would never want myself to have to go through itemized budgets and restrictions and, and uh, that kind of detail. So when I help people on Twitter or when I work with clients, I really try and preach to them that I'm not going to be that budget guru that's going to hold them to hard numbers. I want to make sure that they're making the right moves on a large scale. And I don't want to drill down those details. That That's where you lose most people, I think. It was a learning experience for me, Sean. I, For what it's worth, I am, I would guess, like the 98th percentile when it comes to zealotry for budgeting and tracking. But I wrote an article probably a year and a half ago now where I asked maybe 30 other bloggers what they did. And I found mm-hmm. I was way out on the one end of the spectrum. And a lot of people did exactly what you do or very similar to what you do, which is they check in once a month and all they do is they see where their accounts stand. They compare them to the last month. They see what progress they've made and that's it. If they've lost, shouldn't say lost money. If they realize that they spent too much money, well, then they change their mindset moving forward and say, okay, maybe I need to pull it back a little bit, but they're not really getting lost in the details. They're really just doing that once a month check-in. Exactly. And when you say you're on the one end of the spectrum, you're saying you're on the detailed, love your numbers and budgets, hold, hold you accountable kind of side. Exactly. So how much time, how much, how much time do you spend then? Is it, is it a pretty detailed process? 
So I use the bud, uh, the budgeting app called You Need a Budget or YNAB. YNAB. And I spend probably um, 20 minutes a weekend would be my guess. Where I sit down on Saturday with my cup of coffee. I pull up my bank account. I pull up my Fidelity account. I pull up YNAB. And I just punch in that week's um, that week's expenditures. I could sync YNAB up to my bank directly. I just choose to do it manually. I guess uh, just good so I can, move. I think right. I think I just I don't really want that connection to be there between the two. And I'd rather just if I'm doing it manually, it's kind of like I can error check live. I'm with and, you on that. I've got a strong opposition to over automating because mm-hmm. a lot of people have asked me my favorite apps and a lot of them mentioned mint or ynav where you can sync it up and i think you lose a lot of value of tracking when you remove yourself from the process when you're automating those things like you're kind of implying not only is there errors as far as the tracking data a lot of times they they categorize things wrong but beyond that i think if you rely too heavily on that automation it becomes a fun gimmick and a fun tool that maybe you breeze and glance at every once in a while when something's going bad. But if you're not spending the time to be conscious of your numbers and categorize things yourself and, and even just inputting that hard data by hand, I think you lose that value of tracking. I agree. It, it serves as an excellent reminder at times when I'm doing my tracking and I have to punch in that $70 purchase from some gimmicky gift shop And I kind of have to sit there and look at myself in the proverbial mirror and say, oh, yeah, I kind of did waste 70 bucks on some stupid purchase there. If it was automated, I might not ever think about that purchase again, but I have to relive it when I'm doing my budgeting. And uh, it's just one of many benefits that I feel I get from from doing it all myself. But I feel uh, like we need to put that into our mix, maybe the occasional month, maybe we should do that quarterly. Cause I'm thinking about how many times we would have to punch in Amazon delivery of some kind. Uh-huh. <laughs> and that might clue us into like, Oh man, death by a thousand cuts. This is how it's happening. <laughs> it's to each their own, Sean. I think it's to each their own, whatever makes you comfortable. And uh, at the end of the day, I've seen some of your financial statements. I've seen what you write on Twitter. And I think you've got a pretty good financial head on your shoulders and you're you're all set whether you're doing detailed budgeting or just once a month budgeting um yeah yeah, i wouldn't say we're hardcore fi like we are uh, jessica from the fine years on uh meg norman had a podcast and i did a quote a few weeks a few uh, days ago last week on uh one of my tweets that jessica mentioned and she said something along the lines of reaching fi allows you to make suboptimal decisions once you reach that level of of comfort i'm I'm butchering the quote but essentially once you reach a certain level you don't need to over optimize and you can loosen things off a little bit and that's that's where i feel that we're at I, i often joke with people that i need to get my fi card revoked because i see these people with these incredible savings rates and i'm just thinking oh my goodness like if i could do what they're doing i'd be i'd be retired by now but live a little bit looser and, and our savings rate is hilarious compared to some of these people. Like we're nowhere near, like, again, you've seen my reports. Like I, I could have a, a, a month income for our family of 14, $15,000, but our expenses are also 12 or 13,000. So that's not a very impressive margin when it comes to the FI community, but at the same time where we're at, I don't feel that we need to be squeezing every last drop out of the, out of the, orange like we're 
we're looking to enjoy things and we're on a good pace. And I have to remind myself constantly when I start to stress about money, because even where I'm at, I, I have catch myself in moments where I'm thinking about how I could do better or how we could optimize more. And me and my wife are always trying to remind ourselves that we're way ahead and we're young. I, I'm 33. My wife's 31. We've got so much time that we don't need to deprive ourselves or squeeze any harder than we already are. And arguably I, I could lighten up the reins even more, but I have a hard time. <laughs> like we also do sometimes. It's such it's one of my favorite topics really is that that uh, Venn diagram intersection between spending, saving and fulfillment, I think would be the three things I would think about and how it looks a little bit different for everybody. Uh, but I definitely don't find myself way out on the extreme of some of the FI community of people, you know, making $100,000 per year and living off of $20,000 per year and saving the other you know, after taxes, maybe they're saving, you know, 80% of their post-tax income. Uh, because like you said, I want to live a little bit. It's just a matter one thing that the budgeting does let me do is really focus my money in areas that I know I'll get the most pleasure out of and sometimes try to trim the areas that I don't really care about as much. But it's such an interesting idea. And it's something that I push people to think about is really to try to understand where is your spending going to maximize your happiness and where is your spending essentially not going to bring you any fulfillment whatsoever? And you can maximize the former and minimize the latter. Yes, exactly. Ramit or Ramit is all about that. Cutting ruthlessly right. on things that don't bring you that value and spending lavishly on the things that do. Because we always have to remind ourselves that money is a tool. It's all it is. Like if you're sitting there getting jazzed up because you got a big number in your account, that's not happiness. That's just a digit on a screen. Like the, that money is meant to be spent. It's meant to be used. And some people take that saying to the extreme, but I think we need to remember what that really means. Like it's, it's meant to be used to give you freedom and give you happiness. So by all means, don't feel guilty about if I spend 70 bucks on whatever subscription, like you use as an example, if that's giving you value, do that every month. No, no guilt. Ramets. That, that phrase you just said from Ramit Sethi, for any listeners unfamiliar, Ramit Sethi wrote, uh, he's a very well-known blogger who now is almost more of a personality, celebrity author in the personal finance space. He wrote a book called, I Will Teach You To Be Rich. And just like Sean said, you know, cut ruthlessly in some areas so that you can spend in other areas. I wrote an article where I called that bimodal spending because I'm kind of a math nerd. And uh, I'm, I'm happy to say I'm the first person in history to use that phrase, bimodal spending. And so my blog ranks number one on Google for that phrase. <laughs> but the problem is nobody else on earth uses the term bimodal spending. So it's not like it's yeah, doesn't, any traffic. Doesn't have that marketing ring to it. Just not quite the same. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. That's okay. Someone I'll... in the world appreciates that use of bimodal, but uh, we got to find them. I had, I had a couple small fans within the nerdy personal finance community, but that's that's about it. Um, awesome. <laughs> Sean, you mentioned at one point in there, you mentioned working with some of your clients. So I was just wondering, could you tell us a little bit about, you know, who are you working with or, or what kind of clients those are and, and maybe how, how that ties into the advice you give on FI Squirrel account? Yeah, of course. 
So it's been kind of an evolution of what I've done as far as working with clients and coaching. So since I was 19 years old, I, uh, I've been reading every personal finance book imaginable. I've, I, I've probably read 300, 400, 500. I, I've lost count. I, uh, the first one I read was The Wealthy Barber by David Chilton. It's a Canadian classic. I don't know how popular it is in the States, but up here, it was written, I think it was written in 88, which was the year of, of me. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I feel like it's fitting that it was my first book that really lit the fire in me. So after reading that, I just started consuming. And since 19 uh, years old, I've been that money mentor for all of my friends for years. They'd come to me with questions, advice, and then I think I was, I want to say I was 21 or 22. And my brother got recruited by one of those awful world financial group, skeezy sales insurance type advisor businesses. And he asked if I would come help him for a training session where his mentor would watch him interview me and ask me questions and find, give him tips on how to sell to the person. And I sat there with my brother asking all these questions and his quote unquote mentor, sales coach, essentially. And after about 15 minutes of them not being able to lead me anywhere, because I had the answer to every little <laughs> rabbit hole they tried to take me down, the guy shut down the session and said, why aren't you doing this? Like, why aren't you working as an advisor? And he started trying to recruit me and kind of forgot about my brother. I felt, I felt bad for him. And uh, that was like my first introduction, an awful introduction, because again, it was like a salesy insurance type thing. So Mm -hmm. he did recruit me, but I had this huge moral dilemma because I knew from all of my reading that it was an awful model and it wasn't really what was best for the client. So I lasted with that group um, of advisors, and I use that term loosely, for probably just under a year. And I did very, very little sales. I did a ton of, we'll call it pro bono coaching, where I made $0 for all of my time spent, but I was loving it. I was really, really enjoying working with people. And then I started to get a lot of pressure from this mentor saying, hey, like you're not producing anything, you're not selling anything. And that was the point where I decided to walk away and say, you know what, this this business model is not for me. So from that point forward, probably for the last 10 plus years, I've worked as an independent financial coach. And I use the term financial coach because again, in the industry, I don't know what it's like in the States, but in Canada, you can call yourself a thousand different things. And uh, I don't feel right calling myself a financial advisor or planner because I'm not a certified financial planner. But what I really, really enjoy is sitting down with people or couples or whoever and really getting into the nitty-gritty details. And uh, anyone who's in the business knows that, unfortunately, doing that stuff doesn't really make you money. It's selling insurance. It's getting a really big book of investments. Um, but I've done really well with my, my own investments. Um, and I've, I have a good regular job. I work a nine-to-five job for my local government. So this coaching that I do as a financial coach is purely for my own passion and my own enjoyment. So I really don't make much money doing it. I, I joke with all my clients that take me for dinner and, and that's, my, that's my bill. Or a lot of them, I tell them, realistically, what I want is I want people to go on vacation with later in life. So 
let me help you. Let me get, help you get some money and get your house in order. And then when I go some warm climate in the winters, you can come join me for a week or a month at a time. So that's my sell to them as far as what I get paid is just helping them and knowing that they're going to be better off. Uh, so I work with my clients, uh, again, going through essentially what I do on FI Squirrel. I'm giving them general advice. I'm giving them help with buying a car or getting set up with a proper mortgage broker or buying the right insurance and, and not getting ripped off by one of those salesmen. So I just like to sit down and kind of comb through their numbers, trim up their budgets. I make them do a budget in the beginning only once just so we can get an idea of expenses and where things sit. Um, but I kind of go through those fine details that I think most advisors, the good ones do, but I don't think many of them enjoy doing. That's kind of my niche of what I do for, for working with clients. So right now it's just an in-person business of what I do with family, friends, referrals here where I live. Um, I reached. I have a few people reach out to me on Twitter. I try and help, but uh, so far I haven't really branched out much as far as online coaching because I really only have so much time to donate, and I don't know if I'll ever scale up or not. I'm sure one day if I ever fall on fire from my job and stop working, I'll spend a lot more time coaching. But where I'm at right now, I'm just kind of taking it slow. I love that story, Sean. It reminded me of some good friends I have here in Rochester who found themselves working at a large advisory company where they had a lot of pressure from their upper level management to sell bloated insurance products to unknowing, unsuspecting clients. And it really was no pun intended, not in the best interest of those clients. Ooh. There we go. There we go. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, they ended up quitting. They ended up, uh, six of them got together and quit that insurance company for lack of a better term. I'm calling them an insurance company. And they started their own advisory where they had the freedom to really think about what was best for their clients and, uh, and they're loving it. And, and they're, it's still a smaller company and kind of not quite a startup, but they're doing really well for themselves. They're much happier doing it and, uh, and they're doing better for their clients, which is really ultimately what's most important there. Yeah. I love hearing that. I love hearing when people have that strong moral compass and unfortunately, if, if you really need the money, some people, they, they, they have to go against their compass because they maybe need to make a living doing it. Thankfully, I still had my regular job and I've done well with investments and I've been frugal since I was a teenager. So I never had that pressure where I felt I needed to make a sale. Um, I'd much rather see, again, people succeed. It's, it's a thing born deep into me is that I just... I like seeing people succeed. And sometimes to me, seeing a friend, a family member or a client win and do well and be set up is worth way more than whatever fee I could ever collect for them doing some other business model. That is excellent to hear. One thing I like that you, you, you make those clients, especially if they're a new client or maybe a beginner in money, you actually do make them sit down and do a budget. And just going back to the budgeting topic we were talking about earlier, that's something that I push people towards as well where I found that a lot of more experienced people I've spoken to have said, yeah, I, I ran a budget for a few years. And then once I got used to it, I don't do all the details anymore. But for beginners who really have never had any understanding of where their money is going, I think they get a lot of benefit out of really going through the details of that budget. Yes, I couldn't agree more. The getting an inventory of the numbers is 
a necessity because how, how can you plan or how can you make any kind of strategic adjustments if you don't know where things are sitting at the current state? So you, you need to take that inventory. And I've sat down with people, I kid you not, as a couple that not only don't know where their money goes as far as spending, I've had people that don't know how much money they make in a month. They literally, the, the bank account is like the iron curtain. They never look behind. And all they know is money gets dumped in there and then money comes out of there, but they don't ever look. They just have this kind of like out of sight, out of mind approach to things. So figuring out how much is coming in each month and how much goes out. Like the big reason why I do it is everybody's, everybody's excited to invest. It seems like when they sit down with me, they think I'm going to invest. I'm going to get rich in the market. And to me, there's so many foundational things we need to go through before we get there. And a lot of times when they want to invest, I say, okay, well, before we get started, what are, you, what are your goals or what do you have in mind? And they start, they jump right into, I'm going to do $200 a month, $200 a month. And we're going to, I'm going to do that. And I've seen a calculator. I'm going to get rich. And I say, okay, so how did you get to $2,000 a month? Like, where does that number come from? Did you just pull it out of the sky? And then they kind of give me a puzzled look. I'm like, well, do you know how much disposable income you have? And for some people, $200 might be a ton. It might be a stretch. It might be perfect. Or I have other clients where, for example, I have one client, he uh, does oil field sales and he makes a ridiculous amount of money. And he, his company he works for pays for his truck, his insurance, his cell phone, his gas. Like, like he has got the ultimate job. So we sat down and we went through his numbers and he was bringing in like seven or $8,000 a month and his expenses were like one or two. So I said, DJ, you're clearing cash flow $6,000 a month and you want to invest 200. I think we can do better. <laughs> and sometimes they need a push because if you just pull out an arbitrary number, they probably are really happy they're getting started, which is great. But if you, again, if you don't have that inventory of what goes in, what comes out, you're really just taking a wild guess and you could be doing way better or you need to scale back. One of the, you don't want to obviously overspend and leave yourself with nothing, but I find more often than not, people really underestimate what they're capable of. And I always try and drive home that point of if you don't account for where things are going, as far as that excess money you have, the gap, as we call it in personal finance, if you don't account for the gap, it will just fall through your fingers. It will just dissipate because if you don't give it a job or give it an assignment or put it somewhere, you will find a way to mindlessly spend it. And often when we go through that very first budget or cash flow exercise, they're usually in shock that I make X amount of dollars and I spend X amount and I should have one to two to three or a couple hundred, they should have so much money excess, but they have no um, recollection of where it's been going or how they don't have more of it because they've never given it a job or given it a thought. Uh, routine listeners of the podcast are going to roll their eyes, as I say, for the 38th time in 27 <laughs> episodes that you can't manage what you don't measure. It's a famous quote from Peter Drucker. And it's something I write about on the blog all the time. It's something that I apply to budgeting just like you just did there, Sean. You can't manage your finances unless you are doing some sort of measurement of those finances. Something just as simple as money coming in, money going out, and therefore how much disposable income do I have? 
you have to be measuring that if you want to manage and improve your finances. I don't know if you noticed when you, when you emailed my business account, but that's in my signature is under really? my name. <laughs> it's what, what, how I put it is like, what gets measured gets managed. And it's the exact same idea. People need to have a baseline and they need to have some form of measurement or tracking because what's out of mind, what's out of sight, it's never going to work for you. But you heard it here first, folks, or maybe you didn't, but at least you heard it here twice. So let's go back to these net worth statements that you that you share with us on Twitter and that people kind of can keep track of on a regular basis. Can you talk us through a little bit about what the constituents of your net worth are and which investments you choose to invest in, those that you've ignored over time, and, and give us a reason why? Sure. So back when I started, I was a mutual fund guy when I was 19 and I got into some individual stocks and I've mainly been in the market, um, but probably for the first three, four years from 19 to 22 ish, uh, I built up a good nest egg and I used that money to buy my first property. Uh, I moved out finally when I was 24, I was in my last year of university and uh, it was finally time for me to kind of leave the coop. So I, uh, I bought a condo. I was a new build condo, moved in, and I noticed it was a brand new building and there was no one beside me. And I was coming home one day and I heard a bunch of little yippy dogs just going to town downstairs on the main floor. And I just thought, oh, I would hate to have someone like that move in next door to me. And then for some reason, it clicked that, hey, maybe I can buy next door to me and control who lives there. So I, uh, I did some homework that night and ran some numbers, and called a broker, and it, it turned out, I don't know how, I qualified as a part-time working university student to buy my second property next door. Shows you how strict the mortgage rules were before, <laughs> before it should hit the fan. But anyway, I, uh, I bought uh, the place next to me. So that was my first rental property, uh, was next door. Uh, fast forward a few years, I uh, started, got married, started a family, we bought a house, and uh, the market wasn't great. So like most people, I think half the real estate people, we became accidental landlords again, and we just kept our other place. So I have two condos side by side that I rent. So that's part of my net worth as far as the hard assets go is I have my house that I live in uh, and then my two condos that I rent out. Otherwise, um, all the rest of my net worth numbers are made up of various registered and non-registered accounts between me and my wife. Uh, I combine all our finances together. Everything we do is as a group, as a couple, uh, our bank accounts all the same. That was a glorious day when we finally merged our bank accounts. I hated the idea of you pay the utilities, I pay the rent, or trying to keep tabs. Now the joke is always, who's getting dinner tonight? Because it all comes out of the same account. So it's <laughs> much, much easier that way. I know everybody has a preference. That's our preference is to combine everything. So that's what our net worth numbers are made up of. But over the years, uh, to be honest, when it comes to that real estate side, I've been very fortunate. I've had great tenants. Um, to me, it's still work. After realizing how hands-off and passive and easy and liquid uh, market investments can be, that's really opened my eyes to real estate. I know there's a lot of real estate bulls out there that, that love the game and props to them. Uh, but to me, there's the few of those drawbacks of liquidity being the biggest one for me. It, if I want to sell, it could take weeks, months, uh, depends on the market. And I'm paying realtor fees. I'm paying legal fees to close and transfer title. There's all these factors where 
with an index fund, if I want out, I'm out. I'm out within a minute. It's 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 almost instantaneous. And uh, just having that freedom to be nimble if I had to or to adjust anything. And again, there's no bad tenants in my index fund. There's no one potentially that's going to trash my place. Or again, I've been very fortunate and lucky, but uh, I take very good care of my place, uh, both my rentals. So when someone moves out, I'm going in there and taking a day off work to patch all the walls, put a fresh coat on everything. I'm crazy type A clean freak. That's how I deal with stress. So I'm going in there and scrubbing grout lines. And I, when people move in, it's, it's as good as a brand new condo every time. So when I have turnover, it's always a big pain in the butt. I just got actually word this last week that one of my places is going to be turning over in September. And I'm already dreading the two-day process of me going in and making it brand new again. So I might need to assess soon about exiting the real estate game. But where I am in uh, in Alberta here in Canada, it's oil country. And uh, oil hasn't been kind to Alberta the last few years. And real estate, in turn, hasn't been strong. So I'm kind of in that tough spot of do I just rip off the Band-Aid and sell and recoup whatever I can? Or do I fill it with a new tenant and start the dance all over again? So given... Uh, Given real estate's work, I, I think ideally over the next few years, I'm going to start to exit and then go purely to market where it's a lot more passive and hands-off. I know uh, 5AM Joel, I'm not sure if you know who 5AM Joel is, but- I do, I do. So so he was on episode seven of this podcast and he had mentioned how he and his wife recently got out of, I think one or two of their real estate investments and might be moving further and further in that direction for exactly the reasons you just stated, Sean, uh, the stress that can come with, whether it's someone moving out, whether it's someone calling in the night, or even if it's a great tenant who's never given you a problem, just that little voice in the back of your head that always is on alert and is always adding a little bit stress to your life. Is that worth it? Maybe as you're yep. coming up through the net worth ranks, it is worth it. But eventually you hit some point where maybe you're at that point, Sean, where the reward isn't really worth the risk anymore. I think what people fall in love with real estate with is the leverage. I, I struggle with this. With, with market investing, investing, you can leverage your portfolio just the same as real estate. And it's borrowing to buy an asset that you're speculating is going to go up. It's the exact same as real estate, but people have a lot more faith in real estate because it's a lot less volatile. It's hard asset. It's seen as it's seen as much safer. And don't get me wrong, I'm not uh, vouching for leveraging your market portfolio at all. But I think people fall in love with that leverage of real estate because when you are moving up the net worth ranks, it it helps you to really juice your returns when you're at the lower end of that and you want to start getting faster growth. You can put in those low down payments and get the, get the high loan value and really get a strong return on your money. Uh, and it can really help you grow that net worth quickly. Um, I think that's part of why, again, where I'm at now, I don't really need that extra leverage. And I'd rather not have that risk of tenants. And to be honest, if I could go do it all over again, I just wouldn't do condos because I have two condos side by side and everybody knows someone who has a horror story about a special assessment of some kind. And if anything happened, heaven forbid, in my building, I'm getting a double bill. And uh, my wife is more the emotional side of our money relationship. And she's 
never been a fan of our rental property. She's always begging every time someone moves out, please, 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 let's sell it. And I'm the one running the numbers saying, ah, it's cash flow positive. It's an asset. It's mm-hmm. paying down. I'm, I'm giving logic, logic, logic. And she's more on the side of like, you know what? I just, it stresses me out. I don't like it. So I think that's why ultimately we are going to go towards uh, divesting from them. Just because again, we, with a condo, you get condo fees that go up almost it's inevitable. I was president of my condo board for six years and I did everything within my power to keep those fees low, but you can't fight insurance premiums. You can't fight damages and maintenance and routine things. And it just, it just goes up. Whereas I feel like people that do single family housing or something that's standalone, that's an asset in the land that's yours forever. And I think no matter what, those ones will do a lot better as opposed to being at the mercy of multiple people in a condo type situation. That's very interesting risk reward calculations that, that you're taking on. Uh, my brother and I have frequently talked about if we want to go into something similar, it might not be a condo, but it might be a rental house, say here in Rochester, New York. And, and that's one of the cons what you just, that story you laid out is something that we have in our con column, which is penance or uh, things that are completely out of your control. It's maybe the best umbrella that covers all of those potential risks, tax assessments, natural disasters, bad tenants. That is the landlord's worst nightmare. And if we're just coming into it as amateurs and it's kind of something we're doing on the side, is that something that we're really prepared for? So it's a question we're asking ourselves and probably a question that any potential real estate investor out there needs to ask themselves. Yeah, it's definitely not for everyone, but it has its place. Uh, as you're talking about you and your brother doing investment, I think about the day that my kids uh, get to university or somewhere along those lines where I think I want to help them. Thinking back, if I could have done a house hack earlier in my life, oh man, I would be all over it. If I knew about that, I, I probably didn't start really getting deep into that kind of stuff until later in my 20s uh, when I was already into a deep relationship with my now wife who's very much would never do tennis. She would never be down for it. But I think about my bachelor days and oh, like house hacking is, it's, it's a hack. It's a life hack. I think it's such a genius thing. And seeing as um, housing costs and living expenses are everyone's biggest number. Mm-hmm. I think as a bachelor, if you're able to find a good tenant or friends, it's crazy not to consider something like a house hack. It's a lot of people when I sit down and go through their numbers, they either have, I have a few single friends that own big houses, like three, four bedroom houses. And it's just them. And I'm, I'm always suggesting, have you ever considered maybe having a tenant or, or people that again, pay an outrageous uh, rent somewhere. And realistically, they'd be far better off if they were able to swallow having a tenant it's all about finding the right fit obviously and i'm not one to speak because again logically i say i would love it but being as type a clean freak as i am i probably could never coexist with like 98 percent of the population i think back of all my uh, days of lacrosse and sharing hotel rooms with teams on trips and just having my half of the room perfection and the other half an absolute disaster and i just think oh i could never live with these guys so house hacking, well, one solution for you, Sean, might be like a, a duplex or a triplex, or it would have been the solution potentially for a bachelor, Sean. But house hacking, for those who don't know, and fill in the holes here for me, Sean, is, is that you act as the landlord in some way, 
and the tenants that you have, their rent covers the entire expense of the house. So you, as a landlord, essentially get to live there for free. So it might be two, two sides of a duplex. It might be a four-bedroom house where you rent out three of the bedrooms. But either way, your tenants are paying the vast majority, if not the entire mortgage on your behalf. Yeah, exactly. You've nailed it. You're able to subsidize that largest cost of living by having a mutual benefit of taking on friends or people you don't mind living with and helping them subsidize your living expenses. It's it's a beautiful thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Especially as a, as a young person looking to grow that net worth, it, it really does work. And I think we have mutual friends on on Twitter and other places who are who are doing that as either young bachelors, bachelorettes, or young couples. And uh, it's a way to really, really catapult your your net worth growth in your 20s and 30s. Uh, all right, Sean, let's go into the famous rapid fire questions. And the first one is, what's the last material object or personal luxury that you spent $100 or more on? It's a great question. Uh, I'm trying to think. I don't spend a lot of money on myself typically, but something that's coming to mind uh, we bought this summer, so lucky. My wife made a unilateral decision. She bought one of those inflatable pools for a backyard and it could not have worked out better. I, at the time I was very skeptical and nowhere could I have seen the heat dome that Canada has been dealing with. I'm sure some of the states has been seeing as well, but we've had temperatures that are just absurd, like 38 degrees, 40 degrees Celsius, which, I don't know Fahrenheit, a hundred, over a hundred for yeah. sure. And that's not typical for where we live. So having that pool out on our deck in the backyard has been incredible. And it was like 120 bucks from Walmart. And I was really skeptical on the quality of this thing, but I can tell you it has been the best 120 bucks we've spent in a couple of years, I'd say. I love that. And for any listeners curious, uh, 38 Celsius is about 100 Fahrenheit exactly. 40 Celsius is about 104. And that is toasty. Next question, Sean, what's one good habit you're trying to form or a bad habit that you are trying to break? As far as good habits go, uh, I'm always looking to read. So last year, uh, I'm a big spreadsheet nerd. And last year in 2020, uh, again, I didn't even see COVID coming, but it just worked out perfectly that I made this impressive spreadsheet of habits. And I had what was called my weekly rhythms where each week I had, I think I had like seven or eight different habits of things I actually checked off on Excel on my phone each day as like a confirmation I completed. And reading 30 pages a day was my big thing for 2020. And I didn't just stop at 30 pages. I would read way beyond 30 was the minimum, but once you get going, you can't stop yourself. So I probably read 40 books last year and it was just the year of self-improvement. It was wonderful. Uh, and then this year, of course, like most sprints, when you're tracking something, unfortunately, when you hit the finish line, sometimes you stop in 2021, I have not been reading. So that's something I think I definitely need to get back into, just get back into that 30 pages a day type thing to get me to get the ball rolling, to build some momentum because yeah, I really enjoy reading and self-improvement. And uh, I think it's something that's going to help me a lot. And uh, you and me both in terms of trying to reform the reading habit. I used to be a voracious reader. 
I still love reading. I still buy books as if I were a voracious reader, which means my, <laughs> my to read pile is higher than ever. And I just need to get back into it. I need to get back into it. See, we need to revoke your FI card. Get the li- library app. Libby is where it's at. Those eBooks, oh, just chef kiss. I just download a book. And if I happen to not finish it and it gets returned, I just take it back out again. I actually, maybe I should look into that because my little hack that I've been using recently is a, it's a website called Better World Books where I've been able to get used books delivered to my house on average for about $4 a book. And Ooh. then... Uh, at least I get to keep the hard copy. I get to take notes in the hard copy and it's mine forever if I, if I so choose. So that's been working out pretty well for me, but still at the same time, you know, it's easy for me to spend 50 bucks on, uh, on 10 used books. And then some of them I read, some of them I don't, but I'll look into the Libby app. You're not the first person to have mentioned it to me. And uh, it sounds really cool. It's a lifesaver. I feel like if I bought books, I would do it more for the aesthetic of having just a beautiful bookshelf. I think of, uh, Owen on Twitter. Yeah. What's his hand? What's unleash, his handle? He's got unleash the un, no. Yeah. Unleash the no. And he's just got these book pictures. It's like book porn. And I look yeah. at him like, oh, this is amazing. Just the colors. So yeah, I feel like I would probably fall into that. I have a hard rule that uh, I will only buy a hardcover book if it's something worthy of reading again that I want to keep. So I the books that I do have are things that I know I will go back. I have a couple books that I, I read once a year just because i i really enjoy going back to that good to me that i need a hard copy but for the most part the ebook one and done when you've read as many personal finance and self-development books after a while some of them don't stand out as much as others so it it makes it a little bit easier to have that hard rule of only buying the best uh what's your favorite financial tool or app or service and why is it is it unfair to say my own money marathon spreadsheet (laughs) <laughs> no, no, it's not that, that unfair is, at all. That is by by far. I guess I've I've tried other stuff, but it, like I mentioned before, if it gets too fancy and too automated, I find it loses value. And to me, putting in that fifteen minutes a month of punching in my numbers and going through that practice keeps everything front and center, and it makes sure that I'm in align with exactly what I'm aiming to achieve. So I find a lot of tools just remove that, that value for me. Or I've gotten frustrated when they don't track things correctly. Again, being type A, having to go back and correct like 47 entries because they put down something as insurance or property when it's something else that always drives me a little bit nuts as far as apps go. So yeah, my money marathon spreadsheet. And again, I just try and keep it as simple as possible. I don't know if, if you've ever taken a look at it, but it's, it's as simple as all the money that came in that month, one column, Mm-hmm. All the money that went out that month, totaled up, spits out a red or a green. Are you cash flow positive or are you cash flow negative? And that's as simple as it is. That's it's almost too simple where people maybe don't see value because they're thinking, "Where's the bells and whistles?" But to me, it, I don't want to distract from the most important thing. And to me, it's that cash flow. So even as my net worth numbers have climbed and my accounts have grown, I'm always trying to keep myself grounded in the cash flow, because those net worth numbers are by and large beyond my control. It's the market is going to do what it's going to do. This last month has been vicious for a lot of people and accounts have dropped and maybe it would really rattle a person. To me, it doesn't bother me at all because that's all future Sean, future 
family of ours money. And it's not really a concern of mine. To me, I need to make sure that this month I'm bringing in more money than I'm spending and I'm controlling the controllables and taking care of what I can. I haven't taken a look at the money marathon spreadsheet, but I will after we're done here, Sean. And in case any listeners want to, is that something that, that they can get their hands on? Yep. It's just on my, uh, my Twitter bio. I'm at FI underscore squirrel. And it's just a gumroad link and it's a free download. And I have no intention if anyone's concerned of monetizing my Twitter or creating a big email spam list. I literally just put it on there. So whoever wants it can just click on it and take what they want from it. Excellent. Well, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. All right, Sean, we actually did have one question come in from Twitter, our mutual friend, Adam Schaup, who was here last week on the Best Interest Podcast. Adam asked, what did F.I. Squirrel want to be when he was younger? Oh, good question. Digging deep into the history of F.I. Squirrel. (laughs) Well, depending on what age you ask me, I, I probably would have ranged from anywhere from a professional lacrosse player who probably would have made next to no money as a professional athlete <laughs> or um, your classic firefighter. Probably I, uh, that was kind of a dream of mine back before I met my wife and I, uh, I was going through my business degree in university and I met her right at the end of my degree and she was just starting her nursing degree and she convinced me not to do fire because as a shift working fireman and a shift working nurse, she was scared what the family dynamic would look like. So she convinced me to stay at my uh, my government job, which I've been dying a slow death at right now. And uh, recently, we actually recently uh, rekindled my dream of becoming a firefighter. I think I'm uh, considering a career change now and looking to apply and kind of make that jump. Uh, I don't know if I'm too old. 33 is not that old. But as far as firefighter years, I maybe have skipped my prime of my days. But uh, that might be in the cards for uh, for me in the next few years here. Wow, that is very interesting. And uh, you made me think of something. I'm going to send you a little gift after this. Not sure if you'll like it or not, but but we'll see. I'll send you a little gift. It's oh, the suspense is going to kill me. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. And the last question for you, Sean, what message would you put on a billboard to share with the world and why? Okay, so my billboard. Uh, I'm going to try and keep it not too platitude-ish, uh, but my account typically focuses on money or being positive and just being a good person. And as important as I think money is, I'd rather keep my message about being a good person. So my billboard would say something along the lines of be the person that you needed in your deepest, darkest moment. So I just think that a lot of us at different points in our life have really needed help. We've needed a mentor or a support or someone that's there to, to lift, lift us up. And I think if you can take all of those characteristics of what you really needed and apply it to being that person for someone else, uh, I believe in a world of karma. And I think just being that support for someone, you will have that given back to you one day when you truly need it. And even if you never get that given back, I think just giving that gift to someone of serving and being there for them is what the world really needs. We just need more of people who are 
what's the term when you're giving with no expectation of getting anything back altruistic altruism i studied in university in one of my philosophy 101 or 102 classes and it really really stuck with me that philosophy of giving without any expectation of reciprocity i think if more people took that approach and lived a life of service and helping other people it would truly transform everything i think of uh Ty romper how do you say his last name todd or todd yep he is yep. just my one of my favorite i i rant about him probably bi-weekly i'll say something about him on twitter but i truly think if the world was full of ties my goodness like this would be just an amazing place it, it is an amazing place to live but i look at a guy like that and he is I kid you not, probably my number one follow because he just inspires me every day to breathe energy into people, to be positive, to help others, to be a good dad. Like, I just, I can't say enough about people like that. And I think more people need to follow Ty and start trying to be their best version of that kind of person. Follow Ty, follow Sean, because Sean, I think you have that same energy. So Sean, you mentioned it before, but how can people reach out to you? Anywhere on Twitter, DMs is probably the best place. Uh, you can reach out for any kind of uh, advice or coaching questions or anything I've talked about here. I'm, I'm glad to expand upon. Uh, now that I've had my first podcast with you, thank you so much for having me on. Now that I've done this, I feel like it's a little less intimidating. And uh, I just got to say, what you do on your spaces, what you do with your group, your panel is just, I'm so jealous of what you guys got going. And if, if, uh, if I could ever find the time to commit, I would just love to do what you guys do. Talking shop, talking money, personal finances is my jam. You guys are my people. So I'm sure if I'm ever able to catch it, see my time zone's tricky because where I am, a lot of times when you guys are running it, it's right during dinner time i got two crazy kids and my house is just it's just not conducive to chatting over spaces regularly but if i can ever jump on i'm going to request that mic and i'm going to throw in whatever piece i can to contribute to the masterpiece what you guys run every week i just love what you guys do thank you so much i'm sure the other guys will hear this but if not i'll be sure to tell them and i think we'd love to see you there we'd love to have you on thank you sean fi squirrel huge fanboy huge fanboy <laughs> Another huge shout out to F.I. Squirrel. Thank you for coming on the Best Interest Podcast, Squirrel. That was an awesome conversation. I'm excited to have you back. And if you want to connect with F.I. Squirrel, I've included his links, his Twitter profile in the show notes. If you want to reach out to me, you can email me, jesse at bestinterest.blog, or follow me on Twitter, where my username is bestinterest underscore jc. If you find this valuable and you want to give back, there are three easy, free options for you. Always free, absolutely free. You can subscribe to the Best Interest Podcast from the app you're listening to right now, or you can leave a rating or a review of the podcast. Let me know what you think. I love, love hearing back from you guys. We can continue to invest in one another because, as Ben Franklin said, an investment in knowledge pays the best interest. Sharing with others, that is investing in their knowledge. So thank you guys. Thank you for listening to episode 28 of the Best Interest Podcast. Mm -hmm.